As we come into this series where we're going to look at worship, there's a few questions uh, that I think are worth asking as we start. Is there such a thing as true worship? Are there specific things that ought to be part of my worship? Or, and third, are there many different ways that we can worship, all of which are legitimate? Well, the answer to the first question is yes. There is a true worship. We're going to be in a passage today where Jesus actually uses that expression, true worship, true worshipers. So there is a true worship. Second question, yes. (laughs) There are specific things that the Bible says. In fact, worship is a huge subject in the Bible. Just like everything about our, our Christian experience is a journey of discovery, you never have it down. The Bible has a lot to say about things that ought to be part of our worship. Do you know what they are? And to answer the third question, yes. There are lots of different styles, lots of ways to creatively respond to God. In fact, that's part of the beauty of who God created us to be, is that we are so diverse. There's a lot for us to learn here. Hopefully, we're going to be able to look at ourselves with a slight sense of humor. How many of you know that website Babylon B. It's the onion of the Christian world. Here's some of the headlines that they put out. Senior pastor assures seniors in the church that the organ has been sent away to a nice big farm in the country. (laughs) Ancient documents confirm that the Hebrew word selah, found in many psalms, is best translated as extended guitar solo. (laughs) Hillsong United renegotiates contract will now split the glory with God (laughs) 50-50. Church oblivious to number of Metallica references pastors getting away with. And the number one worship headline on Babylon B, pair of skinny jeans issues apology after being worn by a 49-year-old preacher. (laughs) Hopefully, we're going to be able to look at ourselves with a slight sense of humor even as we go through what I believe will be an epic transformational journey to becoming a church that even though we hunger for God's presence, we experience it here, We will look back and say we were only beginning to understand worship. We were only beginning to experience God's presence because He's going to do so much more. Don't be afraid of that. Some of you will get afraid of that. Don't be. As we learn together, we'll learn to really worship in spirit and in truth. The big idea today is this statement. Worship is by God and for God. Say it with me. Worship is by God and for God. Now, when we measure worship, we tend to measure it based on what we receive from it. Am I moved by the music? Do I experience awe and wonder? Do I experience God's presence? Are people friendly? Does the Word touch my life? Here's the thing. That means that you're the object of your worship when it's about what you receive. And all God is, is the giver to you. And in some sense, that is, in fact, in a very real sense, that is idolatry. 
I'm the object of my worship when I, when I measure it based on purely what I get from it. To begin this journey towards being true worshipers requires that we reorient ourselves around understanding that worship was not our idea. No human being invented worship. God invented worship. The best we can do is to discover it and then to do it with our whole heart. I want to take you to what I think of as the most important conversation in the Gospels related to worship. Some stunning things are said here, but what makes it equally stunning are the people involved in the conversation. One is Jesus, and the other is not a high priest, the rock star of the worship scene in Jerusalem. It was not a religious theologian, a scribe, or a Pharisee. It was not even one of his disciples. It was someone far outside of the mainstream of the people of God, a woman in Samaria. It's in the Gospel of John, and it's the fourth chapter. I'm going to ask you to grab a Bible so you can read it with me. The fourth book in the New Testament, the Gospel of John, chapter 4. I'm going to start reading at verse 1. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. And it was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For the Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said, well, sir, then give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And then he told her, go and call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I I can see that you are a prophet. Thank you, Captain Obvious. (laughs) 
Now, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. So what has she just done here? Think about this. Jesus begins, can I have some water? Then he kind of uses water as a way to kind of turn things around to spiritual needs. And then he reveals that he knows things about her he shouldn't know. What does she do in response to Jesus' insights about her? She changes the subject. In fact, she goes to what is the classic conflict between the Samaritans and the Jews. You see, the Samaritans were half-bred. They were somewhat descended from the Jewish people, but also from the people that had been moved into that area during the, the Babylonian exile. So their form of worship was a Yahwistic form of worship, Yahweh, God, but they had their own way of worshiping. And in fact, they believed the place to worship was right there where God had met Jacob. This is where we worship here on our high place. And that was the constant conflict between the two. So she decides to, I'm, I'm just going to go there, argue the, the thing I can because that's safer. Jesus responds. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. And yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. There's so much we can get when we unpack this passage. And maybe for you, the first thing goes to the woman herself. You relate to someone who has uh, had a rough life experience or who's on the outside looking in. Or maybe your thoughts go to Jesus just daring to even speak to her. Maybe it's the breakdown of the traditions. Maybe theologically, your mind goes to this whole debate about Old Testament worship. You cherish all those things about the temple. But for me today, in order to reset all of our thinking with the right priority, this is the thing that to me jumps out. God is seeking worship. It was actually God's idea in the first place. God is seeking our worship. Everything God has ever done everything God's doing right now and everything he ever will do has an ultimate purpose and that is his own pleasure and glory. He's seeking worship. Look with me. Keep your um, thumb in John 4, but look with me at Romans 11. The end of the chapter in Romans 11. This is a transition point in this epic document in which the Apostle Paul lays out the gospel, wrestles with the implications about the Jews and the Gentiles, and this is the end of his theological argument. And chapter 12 begins an application of all the truth, and this is how it should impact our lives. 
But before he goes there, all this just drives him to a moment of worship. He offers praise to God. Verse 33, it's a hymn. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. There it is on screen. Let's say it. From him. Through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Do you get the significance of that statement? The New Living Translation gives us a more up-to-date and accurate translation. Let's say this. Everything comes from him and exists by his power and is intended for his glory All glory to Him forever. Amen. Wrestle with this with me. The God who made everything did it all for His glory. How do you feel about that? In fact, what would you think about a person that you met that everything they did was for their glory? We have names for those kind of people, don't we? What are some of the terms that come to mind? Egomaniac. Narcissist, self-centered, self-promoting. Why is that such a negative thing for us when God does it? Why is it not wrong for God when obviously it's one of the despicable things when we do it? Why is it not wrong for God to be at the center of everything? (laughs) Because He is. In fact, for God not to act in that way would be for Him to stop being God. And when we insist on being at the center, when even our Christianity is about me and my needs, the reason why that's sin for us is because we are putting ourselves where only God is to be. And so God actually is acting righteously when He acts for His glory. And you and I, when we do it, are idolaters because we are seeking our glory, our good. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, then, Tom, do I relinquish all of my longings? Do I not look to have my needs met? Do I not look to grow? Oh, stay with me. You sure do. Because even though God is seeking worship, when we become worshipers, what did Jesus promise the Samaritan woman? You will never thirst again. See, here's the great, the great deceit in our spirit. The great deceit is that in seeking my needs, seeking my, myself, my purposes, my priorities, and getting God to approve my plan, <laughs> my soul will be satisfied. But if everything was created for God's glory, then you and I were created for God's glory, and it's only in becoming true worshipers that we actually hit our sweet spot, (laughs) that all of those things either are met or they become unimportant. Our catechisms get it right. 
The question is, what is the chief end of man? What's the main purpose of man? Those of you that went through some form know the answer. The chief end of man is to and to enjoy Him forever. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. I love the way John Piper puts it. He just makes one little change. The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. See, But I can only really get that right if I'm willing to change up my thinking and realize it was God's idea that I worship. It's by Him and it's for Him. And therefore, I want to pay attention to what God says about worship. It can't just be what moves me and satisfies me or what draws the crowd. We have to get the priorities first. God is seeking our worship. It was His idea. And He's got a lot to say about it. But even more than that, it's not just that God is seeking our worship. Jesus said very specifically, because God is acting for his glory, he is seeking people who will worship. He is seeking worshipers. Let's say this again. A time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. They are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. The, the Father is seeking out of humanity any who will come and worship Him. He's doing that today right here. He was doing it through Jesus. And we learned some very important things about the kind of worshiper God's seeking when we look at the person that Jesus is reaching out to, going out of His way, seeking. And what we learned from this woman is that God seeks worshipers from the outcasts. That's what we mean by Samaritan. Anybody in that day knew that was like saying Yankees fans up here, you know. I'm sorry for any Yankee fans here. We love you. I want to say Jesus loves you and there is hope for you. (laughs) The Samaritans were seen as heretics in the worst sense. They, they were not just heathen. They had perverted the faith. The Jews never even associated with them. Most would go around Samaria on their way, but that's exactly where Jesus went to talk about who God seeks as worshipers. We learned that the kind of people from which God seeks worshipers are the marginalized. When we say a Samaritan woman, culturally, that was huge that Jesus was speaking to a woman. This era, this time, in both the Jewish culture as well as the Samaritan culture, women were a little better than property, but not much. There was one ancient Jewish proverb that said, better a dog than a woman. Women were treated very poorly. The fact that Jesus would speak to her as a woman tells us God seeks worshipers from the marginalized. Now, in our culture, women have gained some footing. And today, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male or female in the church. We are all heirs with Christ. Jesus set that right, but there are marginalized around us. And I like to think that sometimes when churches are all gathered here thinking that they're the ones in touch with Jesus, He's out there. He's out there with uh, outcasts and the marginalized seeking worshipers, and He wants us to join Him in that. The person that Jesus is talking to tells us 
that God seeks worshipers from the scorned. John says this takes place at noon and that the woman comes on her own. The well was the social gathering point for women in a village. They all came in the morning because they got their water for the whole day. It's where you gossiped. It's where you're caught up on the news. And yet this woman was not part of that. She came on her own. She was scorned even by the Samaritans who were scorned as a whole by the Jewish people. She had a bad reputation. This person reveals to us that God seeks worshipers from the spiritually thirsty. Jesus is reaching out to her and offering to quench the thirst, the longing that he knows is deep within her, just as much as he knows that she's been married five times and is living with the man who is not her husband. He knows what is in her, as Scripture says, and he touches and he reaches The person he's speaking to tells us that God is seeking worshipers from the broken. Married five times. That is a person that has been beaten up in life. You see, in that culture, divorce was really not her doing. It was the doing of each of those five men who at some point said, you are not worthy, and declared their marriage over and went on to find somebody else who was more satisfying or more attractive or more a harder worker or more beneficial. This is a woman who had been beat up. Life had been hard for her. God seeks the broken to become worshipers. And who Jesus is speaking to reveals to us that God is seeking worshipers from the sinful. And the man you are living with now is not your husband. Yeah, you've been beaten up, but that's led to some really bad choices, some sinful choices. And yet Jesus is reaching out in love. He's not making that observation to condemn her. He's making that observation to say, even though I know the worst about you, I am offering you living water, and that thing in you that is making you lead to these decisions, I can touch, I can fill, I can heal, and you can become a true worshiper. Doesn't that encourage you? You see, when Jesus said, I have come to seek and save that which was lost, that was his mission of seeking true worshipers for the Father. All of us are the outcast and the marginalized and the scorned and the spiritually thirsty and the broken and the sinful. And I love that God is seeking us in the same way Jesus sought that woman. It's just great. And we can become worshipers. Whatever it is, whatever Jesus meant, we can become that. So we know the kind of worshiper, but Jesus actually talks about a, a type of worship. He hints at it, and we're just going to whet our appetite a little bit and then spend more time studying this statement that he makes, the type of worship. You see, there is the old worship, 
which is what the Samaritan woman and Jesus are debating about, where do we go to worship? Here, where God met Jacob, or where you claim to worship in Jerusalem? This is the last hurrah of that debate because things are going to change. But at that point in time, worship was largely around real estate. It was where we go to worship. And for the people of God, it was always the temple. That's where God was. It's the holy mountain, the Psalms of Ascent. When they came for the holy festivals, they were singing psalms about going up to meet God. Why? Because God is in his holy temple. When David, who had a heart for worship, talked about his hunger to be in God's presence, he was not speaking metaphorically when he said, one thing I ask, this is what I earnestly seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. He means that because that's where God's presence was. You see, in the old way of thinking, worship was about real estate. But Jesus is saying, it's changing. The time has come. True worship now is in the Spirit, capital S. It's the Holy Spirit. Spirit and truth. Jesus says it's no longer about real estate, but it's about relationship and revelation. Relationship with God who now will be in and with people. We'll talk a lot about this in the, in the weeks ahead. And then revelation, the truth about who God is and who He reveals Himself to be, especially in Jesus. There's something that's going to change, and there is a significant event that changes everything, and that is Messiah. When she says, I know that when Messiah comes, he will explain all this to me. And Jesus says, yeah, the, the one talking to you, the one offering you living water, the one inviting you to become a true worshiper, I am, the Old Testament name for God, I am, he. It's the coming of Jesus that changes everything so that Jerusalem is no longer where we worship. We can worship in downtown Worcester. We'll learn more about that. It's an amazing, amazing journey to look at. But Jesus has some specific things in mind about true worship, and we're going to explore those together. The big idea today, say it again with me, true worship is by God and for God. So even though, make no mistake, worship is something our hearts long for, worship reaches us in worship. We touch God. We find our heart's deepest thirst quenched, even though all those things are true of worship. In order to become true worshipers, the place we need to start, even though it may be a little less emotional than where we'll be once we learn it all, the place we need to start is not in asking the question, what are you looking for in worship? What am I? What are people looking for in worship? If we get that right, boy, we'll pack them in. (laughs) The right place to start if worship is by God and for God is with this question. What is God looking for in our worship? Do you think you can answer that question? (laughs) You will. Because that's what we're going to explore. 
And I'm so excited about it. Let's, let's go back to that verse, Romans 11, and let's say just those words that pop out from the whole verse. Everything is for His glory. Now let's put it together and just look at that for a minute. It's a simple place to start, but it's profound. You know what? You could take the rest of your life and work on that, and it would transform you. Say it again. Everything is for His glory. And now bow your head and close your eyes and think about your life. Think about your thirsts, the longings, the concerns, the needs, the, the plans. Just think about all of that. Think about your paycheck. <laughs> Think about your experience, good and bad. Think about your heartaches. Just look at your life. And let's commit to this journey of discovery together by saying it one more time. Everything is for His glory. Amen.